Hey everyone, welcome to Queerly Recommended, the podcast where we recommend queer films, books, TV shows, and more. I'm Tara Scott, I review sapphic fiction at the Lesbian Review and Smart Bitches Trashy Books. Chris and I are taking the week off from recording a new episode because Chris went to the GCLS conference and then just as she got back home, I was off visiting my family who live in another province. We are going to update you on what we've been doing with our summers next time, but we still just wanted to make sure we brought something great to your ears. And so we decided let's rerun an interview that I recorded for my old podcast, Let's Do Books. Four years ago, I was lucky enough to interview Anne Bannon, whose lesbian pulp novels saved more lives than we're ever going to know. I've said it a few times, but without Anne Bannon, we don't get the sapphic fiction scene that we have today. Her first book, Odd Girl Out, was the second best-selling original paperback of 1957. And that book saved Catherine V. Forrest's life when she picked it up in a dime store in Detroit. And, of course, you know, Catherine V. Forrest then went on to write a number of incredible lesbian books, including Curious Wine which was the coming out book for many of our favorite lesbian romance authors today. Odd Girl Out was the first of Anne's Bebo Brinker series, which if you haven't read them, I highly recommend. You know, they were all published between 1957 and 1962, but there's like a real immediacy to the characters and their problems that just feels timeless. You can get all five of them in an omnibus from Cleus Press for actually like an incredibly reasonable price. Um, I listened to the podcast again, and I think we said $20. I just looked on Amazon, and now it's down to like 15 which is unreal for five books. I will say, though, that if you do read them, see where you're at when you hit the book Women in the Shadows, because it is a rough read. It's really progressive in some ways and talks about interracial marriage and even has, you know, a marriage between a lesbian and a gay man to kind of protect themselves and have a family. But, like, it deals with alcoholism, domestic violence and lesbian relationships, corrective rape, two dogs get murdered. Like, it's fucking wild. The rest of the books are a lot easier to read. And they're just excellent. The character work is so brilliant. So, like I mentioned, this was recorded four years ago. um, And it was recorded in the summer of 2019. We were three years into the Trump administration at that point, which I still find one of the most mind-boggling phrases in the world, but whatever. And our community was very concerned about the harms that Trump was doing to the rights of LGBTQ people across the United States. And for those of us not in the United States, you know, some of us have been really concerned about the knock-on effects that could extend to other countries. And of course, now it's 2023. Things are worse. We've been proven right to be concerned. You know, there's been legislation attacking drag queens and trans affirming care and the Supreme Court saying it's okay to discriminate against people like us. That's just in the United States. Um, I know in, in Canada, New Brunswick, we've recently had some real fuckery about trans kids and, you know, Hungary. It's not good. Like, it's just, it's, it's a weird, scary time. And when I was listening back, to the episode before recording this intro, I was really struck by Anne's like happiness and optimism about the progress for LGBTQ people, including trans people. And I actually wondered if it was a good idea to rerun this episode just because things feel so dark right now, even though it's actually one of the episodes of Let's Do Books that I've always been the most proud of. And I just felt so lucky to be able to have a conversation with Anne. Um, but you know, I got to the end. 
And I asked her what she would say to people who are afraid. And I think we all need to hear her words and take them to heart. Because it is scary. We've been here before and we'll do it again. So, pardon. So I hope you'll listen to the whole conversation. Listen to Anne talk about what it was like in the 1950s. Because that's where some legislators would really like to take us. And I hope you can also find inspiration in her closing words like I did. Also, if it sounds like we're mid-conversation, that's only because it is. As I usually do when recording an interview, I had been running Anne through the structure of the interview, how everything was going to work. And I gave her an example of a question that I might be asking in the conversation. But what I didn't expect was that she would just take off and start saying the kinds of things that I wanted to have in the episode. And I hadn't even hit record yet. So luckily, I picked it up on it pretty quickly. I hit record on my side. But that's why it starts sort of with no... Yeah, that's why it starts like that. So anyway, now on with the episode. I think when I was first writing... It was hard to think of us as a community. It was hard to have a sense that you were in a a, a like-minded group. You knew it was there. At least you did if you were lucky enough to be in a big city, acquainted with anyone else who shared your feelings. But mostly I think women who were inclined to identify with other women were were isolated. They didn't know how to connect. They didn't know where other people were. And so if you were out in the, you know, middle of the country in a small town with very few connections, you know, there, it, it was just such a different world. There were no lesbian bars or very, very few. There were no lesbian bookstores or gay bookstores. So where did you go for information? And one of the things that I think happened as a result of the lesbian pulps that were being written back then was that they could be found anywhere. You could be living in the Midwest. You could be living in an isolated town without any social support and with no other source of information. But you could find those lesbian pulps on the same shelf with the pulp Uh, westerns, (laughs) the science fiction, the cops and robbers, the romance and the fantasy, and there they were. So for the first time, really, it was easy access, and I think it was an, an initial sense on the part of young women who had otherwise nowhere to go, no one to ask. Even the people you thought could help were about as ignorant as you were. So the lesbian pulps were, that was why they were so important. And there were gay pulps as well, and they served the same purpose. They weren't quite as visible. And it's hard to say this, but I think it was tougher on the young men than the, than the women because uh, there was less sense of acceptance to the degree there was any at all. But I mean, there was more rejection, let's say more of a pushback uh, with regard to the men and the women. Uh, so, so there's something about women together <laughs> that has always fascinated everybody, not just mm-hmm. the women, but men have found it a romantic, interesting, 
phenomenon and they have they have pursued it and they have been interested in it going back centuries and we know that so those books were were marketed and they were marketed in part to a big crossover audience of men but that's what kept them going and it's a shame to say it but the women of course would find those books and enjoyed them thoroughly and saved them there's still women who come up to me at book shows carrying their original copy of Odd Girl out and saying, I don't know what I would have done without this. And mm -hmm. it's such a a kind of touching phenomenon that it, it meant that much, but it was all people had. So you can understand why it, it was significant in their lives. You can also understand why they hid them. I mean, if your mom and dad found out you would probably be disinherited. You'd certainly be told to leave the family. It, it really was a scary time. And people, I think today when you're young and you're full of energy and, and you see the world opening up to you and the mainstream society accepting gay people and the gay pride parades and all the wonderful stuff that goes on these days cruises you can go on a cruise with only women or only men you know this is just phenomenal yeah. and uh it was just so constrained and and uh, dangerous back then so writing writing really was an act of determination and stubbornness and courage and hope um mm -hmm. <laughs> you know there there that had to keep you going because when your family found out, it was a very, a very alarming time. I had to come clean with my mother. She, I had, in fact, I'd been telling her we have, I have a book going here and it's going to be published shortly. That was Odd Girl Out. And she was thrilled and she had told all her friends. And so when she realized what I had written and, and how do I handle this, it was very hard for her. It really was. She had to sort of go around to her friends and say, well, you know, Anne will do better next time. And, and this isn't quite what we thought it would be. And so it, it was hard. I think one of the things you wanted me to talk about was how I started. So let me address that a little bit. Sure. I wasn't one of the women who, who discovered uh, Radcliffe Hall, the well of loneliness, uh, before I knew about anything else, but I did discover it shortly after I became really interested and realized there was a small body of literature that, that I could look at. And it was awfully grim, awfully prim, heartfelt. Um, she was intelligent educated woman but it was it just painted such a a dismal picture of how difficult and uh heartbreaking it would be to come into that world but i quickly thereafter i found one of the pulps i found the first original pulp that had come out on um you know and been widely distributed it was called uh, Spring Fire, and written by Mary Jane Meeker under the pen name Vin Packer. And very interesting, it was the first original pulp, lesbian pulp. So I found that on a, on a drugstore shelf, 
and I got through it. You'll talk about reading as fast as you can. I got through that one in, in incredible speed, and um, and I, actually, it, it gave me some courage. It it gave me heart because even though it had a very grim ending, it was well written. It was there was a really a kind of gripping romance in the middle of it. It was about two young women in college, and I had just come out of that experience. And I found it fascinating that here, you know, I, I had been in a sorority, so had Mary Jane Meeker. We had lots of points of shared history and contact. So I found it um, heartening. I mean, goodness, I'd done everything everybody else did. I'd been to the library. I'd looked, I'd looked for information, and I couldn't really find it. You could get a note from a professor, and you would be allowed into the, um, the private collection, or the, not private really, but the uh, restricted collection. And uh, it would be medical books, and it would be uh, delicate historical volumes, but it would also be the gay and lesbian stuff. And it was just too embarrassing. So uh, <clears throat> a book like Mary Jane's was the sort of beginning of a tidal wave of fascinating information. Some of those books were reprints of hardcover books that had also been very hard to find from the years in, in the 30s and 40s. But this was after World War II. And it's an interesting time because any, any period after great, a great war like that is bound to be a, a conservative time. A war is succeeded by everyone wanting things to go back to normal. And normal to them always seems like what, was, what the world was like before the war. So the 50s was that period for us after World War II. And the guys came home and the young women came home that had been the nurses and support staff. Everybody had learned a lot. I mean, you know, how are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've been to war? Good Lord. So it was, um, it, it was an odd time because everybody tried to return to the traditional roles the women put their skirts on and put down their rivets, their riveters, and and the guys wanted uh, their wives out in the kitchen making tuna casseroles and having the babies. And so, in that regard, it was a very conservative time. The people couldn't forget who they had been during that time. The freedom, the independence, what they had learned, and you couldn't just pretend that away. And I really think the 50s were a kind of launch pad for the, uh, the movements that came so shortly thereafter in the 60s. So we, it started with the great civil rights movement in the early 60s. The women's movement followed shortly after that. The Stonewall Rebellion that everyone's been talking about the past week or so occurred in the late 60s. So it's all that, that little package following the 50s, which were so conservative and where information was hard to find and everyone was still very closeted and, and uh, cautious. 
So you had you have to remember that we were writing in the 50s and the early 60s, and it was still that that difficult, dangerous time. And yet we many of us lived to see this revolution in acceptance, in understanding. It, it isn't complete and it may never be complete, but it's so valuable and so wonderful to see this progress being made. So from the perspective of the 50s, it was almost unimaginable. And it did take another four decades, really. But um, nevertheless, it was that was where it started, really, for me, was Spring Fire, Mary Jane's book. And I thought, darn it, you know, if people can write this stuff, I can write it too. I knew I could write. <laughs> so, I mean, you have to be young, dumb, and determined, you know. <laughs> and I was. So I sat down. I, by this time, I was married, uh, right out of college. But I wasn't working. And except in the home, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have a paying job. So I got to work on my husband's old uh, Remington. And uh, and I turned out the book that eventually was changed, edited into Odd Girl Out, inspired by Spring Fire. It it was quite an experience. I you know I mentioned my mother's reaction, and other members of my family who were concerned and um, anxious about me. Uh, it was kind of an odd time. But it, it, it worked. The, the, I, I had to, I, I guess I'll keep rambling here unless you want to interrupt. No, this is great. I wanted to get in print, of course. If you write, you, you don't just want to talk to yourself. You want to talk to other people. So I, I wrote, I took my courage in both hands and I wrote to Mary Jane Meeker. And I said, your book was great. I, I enjoyed it so much. I learned so much. I'm writing a book myself. I didn't think at the time, my God, she probably gets hundreds of letters every month saying, I too am writing a book. No, <laughs> that didn't occur to me. But she liked my letter and we began a sort of correspondence. And finally she said, um, why don't, can you get to New York? And at the time my husband and I were living in uh, Philadelphia. So it was a train ride up there. The only really difficult part of it was getting him to agree. So I assured him that I would be staying at a women's hotel, <laughs> which made him more cheerful about the whole idea. And I took the train to New York. I went to the women's hotel. And the same evening that I arrived, I got in touch with Mary Jane. She was expecting me. And it was just a wonderful week. She showed me around uh, Greenwich Village. She took me to the women's bars, a couple of the men's bars. There were some very famous ones back then. And we had a great time. We got along well. And of course, I had brought my manuscript with me. So she said, well, uh, I'm going to take you in to meet my editor. She had already prepared him. And he said, OK, if you like her, bring her in. He was an old Hollywood guy. His name was Dick Carroll, and he'd been a scriptwriter and uh, producer. 
and worked out there most of his life. So when my publisher, which was or quickly became Gold Medal Books, was looking for someone to start this new division of original pulp paperbacks, and they did the whole gamut of the genres from the detective stories to the science fiction, and they thought, well, we'll give the lesbian uh, stories a try as well. So that's how, uh, you know, this began. Dick was the editor-in-chief and Mary Jane's editor. So we walked into the offices of Gold Medal Books. We got a, I, she got me an um, interview with Dick. She came in with me. And he was very nice to me. He read the manuscript immediately. And this was something of a miracle. I don't know how it's done today, but they were getting 400 manuscripts a week over the transom, so to speak. 400. Well, they just didn't have a... <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, people can't see I'm shaking my head. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it was sort of incredible, but they were... Um, they were looking for that, that good one in the midst of all the stuff that could, really wasn't publishable. And it was, it was nice, at least, that if you were young and you were yearning to get in print, you had somewhere to go. So Dick read that book. He said it's not very good, but it has promise. And he said, you can write. You have in that story two young women, Beth and Laura. And he said, what you need to do is go home and throw out the other stuff and tell their story. I was very shy about that because I was a little scared. It was a, a sort of inviting danger. I didn't know how far I could push it without getting in trouble. There was still a committee in Congress known as the, the Morality Cops. And if they didn't like your book, and particularly paperback, originals and they had to be shipped by the U.S. Post Office. So therefore Congress had um, control over them. Then they would, um, they would censor them or they, you, you would be told that, or your editor would be told that you had to be ordered to put a sad ending on that story. That happened to Mary Jane and she's been apologizing for it all the years <laughs> since. But. <laughs> But it, I, it, had, it had loosened up a little bit at the time that I was writing. So I didn't have to kill my heroines. It was um, not that bad. I, they didn't stay together at the end of Odd Girl Out, but nobody died. Nobody went crazy. Nobody had to be thrown under the bus. <laughs> you know, I, so I finished reading it two nights ago mm -hmm. and I went into it knowing they weren't going to have a happy ending because also I'd read kind of some of the blurbs for the other books and obviously they end up with other people and all of that but I felt like the ending was still promising because of Laura's journey and how at the end of it she walked away from it so strong so that like I was okay with it not being I mean in the end it doesn't fit as a romance like it's not in the romance genre because it doesn't have that ending but it just, there was so much growth there. I was kind of sad and disappointed for Beth. I'm glad it came across that way. I think it was a strong ending, and particularly given the times. And how that was a heavy lift uh, to be able to get away with that. So I, 
I, in a way, I was spared some of what uh, Mary Jane was put through and, and the, a lot of the other women. It, it was hard going. But I think that's why a lot of readers found their, their way forward. It was through the old pulps and particularly the lesbian pulps. It gave them a, a peek at a better future in a way. And I think it was part of a launch pad for the, the rights movements of the next decade. I really do. We weren't, uh, you know, we were flying along under the critical radar. We were not the quality books. You know, we had the sleazy covers, which of course made the books sell by the millions and millions and brought in the crossover audience, which mattered uh, greatly to the, the success of those books and kept them going. So they, they, had a, they had a very important role to play. There wasn't much going on in the movies except uh, stories that condemned homosexuality or that ended badly for everybody. There was, uh, TV was mainly uh, comedies and um, police stories at that time. Everybody was just getting their feet under them. So the other media weren't providing the, the, uh, the needed outlet, really. Mm -hmm. uh, and the quality fiction was, there was some, not to, not to discount that, but it didn't find the same kind of audience. It really played a role, I think. It actually saved lives. I wanted to ask you about that, actually, because so we're recording this at the very end of June. So people listening to this will be listening to it in July. And this week I mentioned in our Facebook group, because the Lesbian Review, the site that I review, it has um, a book club on, on Facebook. And I mentioned that I was reading it. I do a post every week saying what I'm reading and asking everybody else what they're reading. And I, and I said I was reading Odd Girl Out. Um, and I shared the link to the omnibus because, I mean, you can get all five books for $20. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> and there were authors and readers who were all commenting that, you know, your books were the first lesbian stories they'd read. And Catherine Forrest, when she was on a previous episode of this show, she said that Odd Girl Out was actually the book that saved her life. So when you were writing these books, did you have any idea that you were doing this, that you were saving lives, that you were kind of creating this legacy? I, I really can't uh, claim that I did when I wrote Odd Girl Out, but then the mail came in. Then I began to see how urgent that need was and how grateful women were not just to find my books, but any, any of them that were being written back then. There were, there were other authors. I think there were a good dozen of us that were doing this, and a lot of them were older than I was. But their books somehow, I don't know, they were, they were equally valuable, I'll just say, but mine got quite an intense response. And I think maybe that's why they're still around. I, you know, certainly in terms of uh, the picture they paint of the culture of the times, uh, the social expectations of the times, the way people were living, even the way people dressed and the way they talked, that's all long since outdated, but human nature is the same. Mm. And I think that's the part that speaks to young people. This is how I felt too. And this is how I still feel when I fall in love. And this is that part, that core of it is, is true. 
I don't know how I got that right because I was living between my ears. I had nowhere to go and no way to go anywhere. I did get lucky. We moved out from the East Coast to the West Coast and we lived near uh, Los Angeles in the suburbs. And I found the Daughters of Belitis chapter. And that was a little group of women who were trying to make contact, trying to turn a, a young generation that didn't know each other very well, and many of whom felt utterly sequestered in conservative families and towns, nowhere to turn for information again, and help them find each other, help them make a start in life and feel good about themselves. And, and again, that was a very heavy lift given the tenor of the times, but they were doing the work of the angels. <laughs> they really were. And I, my, over my husband's dead body, I got to these meetings, not a, not a great many of them, but enough to give me a little sense of independence, a little what, a sense of what other people were doing and a feeling that there's movement here. We're not just stagnating, we're not stuck. A few of us are breaking out of families or breaking out of conservative expectations or traditional expectations <clears throat> and finding a way to connect with each other. And that gave us a lot of courage. It was a wonderful organization, it published a little newsletter called The Ladder, and The Ladder to this day is, you know, if you still have your old copies, <laughs> they're now collector's items. Quite remarkable what, what women were finding they, they could say to each other. And the idea, of course, was for that to break out and find a, a greater audience. I mean, The Ladder had to be mailed in plain covers, and <clears throat> you couldn't... Um, you couldn't put the name of the organization uh, 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 or make it clear that this was a newsletter for gay women or anything like that because then these the, the people who needed it most were still many of them living at home with their parents or with straight roommates. So how in the world was a, a publication that arrived in the mailbox declaring itself to be lesbian or, you know, the Mattachine Society letters for the men, um, for, for, for both men and women, really. How could you accept it? Or how could you, how could you sustain a subscription under those circumstances? You couldn't. So it had to arrive looking very anonymous. And therefore, it made it very tough for them to expand their mailing list. Women were afraid to get it. So, you know, these kinds of things wouldn't occur to a young woman in the gay community today or in the lesbian community or the young men either. For heaven's sakes, that's ridiculous. You know, we, we don't anticipate that kind of problem anymore. But it had to be lived through. It had to be surmounted. So I was very glad to make that connection, even though it was a little tenuous. I had to work it in around a babysitter and my husband's absences on business trips, but I did, and I'm so glad I did. The women I met were full of life. They were witty. They were interesting. Many of them were writing or they were teaching. And when you, when you realize you're not alone, it's, you know, 
I, I think that's what happened with Catherine Forrest. Bless her heart, and I can't say enough about what a wonderful person she is and a magnificent writer and, and editor, just a, a, a treasured friend after all these years. And I tell you, it about turns my heart over to think of her as a young girl walking into a drugstore and picking up Odd Girl out at a point in her life where she was in such a state of hopelessness that there didn't seem to be a way out except to go jump off the bridge. Mm -hmm. And um, she didn't. Thank God, uh, how, what a gift she's given the world and what a tragedy that would have been. And there's still kids that do it. You still read in the paper and on the media that the, the, the youth most at risk are the LGBT kids. They just still have that hopeless feeling. Families still sometimes don't understand. Much as the world has changed, it isn't always a hospitable place for young people who are expected to stick to the traditional ways. You still need to read about yourself. You still need to see yourself mirrored back in a positive way. That's true for all marginalized communities. And you know, you think of the people of color today and, and the transgendered people who, who are having a really tough go. They're sort of going through their claim on civil rights and good for them and they are long overdue and it's beginning to help and beginning to work. It makes me realize when I talk about this that people like Harvey Milk were so right. We have to let our families know. We have to face the consequences that people that we know at work. The, the guy next door, the people in our club, you have to say that, who you are, identify yourself. It isn't until people in mainstream society are aware that that nice guy or that lovely gal that they, you know, socialize with or see every day or you know, talk to over the water cooler is, is a lesbian or a gay man or whatever they're, you know, wherever they are on that spectrum. So... It, it, it's still important and it will always be important. But it's also surprising to me that young people today say it must have been so thrilling, must have been so exciting because it was dangerous. And love in times of danger is heightened and more colorful and more thrilling than in calmer, quieter times. So I still, you know, I hear that. <laughs> that feels like such, to be able to make a statement like that, I think really shows your privilege. Mm -hmm. Because <sighs> I, I have to think, and I mean, you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. And I mean, everybody's experience is different. But I mean, I have to think it would also be terrifying to think you could go to jail. Yes. Or you didn't even have to go except, you know, they would take, they would, they would raid the bars they would take you down to the jailhouse and fingerprint you, and they'd take your name. Then they'd let you go, but then it would be in the paper the next day. They used to print the names of everybody they brought in. And, mm -hmm. and, and you are right. It could turn into a jail term if it was bad enough and, and you were caught 
in flagrante. Was, yeah, well, it, and for like people that that were married and had kids, like that. Not that you'd necessarily. I mean, the state of the marriage aside, but like the idea that you could lose your kids, like that's a lot that's a lot of risk. Like you could effectively lose your life depending on the people around you. Mm-hmm. So I, I think unfortunately some people are kind of bored and they like the idea of a little danger in their lives, but at the same time, let's enjoy <laughs> yes. some peace. I, I agree. You have to, again, it's this, when you're young, you have this sort of mindset that you're immortal and that whatever mm-hmm. danger you're thrown into, you'll survive it. You'll overcome it. And I think it's that sense of, you know, the kind of thing that draws people into conflict because I can handle it and it's it's thrilling. And then I'll look back on it and feel I, I, I did it. it. It will give me that, that sense. And, you know, we're all at some point in our lives, we're all young, young and dumb. And uh, we haven't been there and we don't realize so that I, I certainly forgive it. I I, you, I was young and dumb once, <laughs> but um, it makes you realize what a big disconnect there is between the young people today seeing the world around them more welcoming and finding their way in life with acceptance and being able to tell. In many cases, not not all, but in many cases friends, family, co-workers. There are churches now that welcome gay people. It, it really, the, the universe has taken a turn since we were young and, and writing the pulps. And of course the pulps faded because that, that social tembler was actually already moving. That wave was starting to cross the landscape. And so, you know, the work we were doing was not so much life-saving or necessary as the decades moved on, uh, which is an interesting thought. <laughs> we, in a sense, the the role that the lesbian pulps played became not totally obsolete, but it it wasn't as essential at the life-saving level as it had been. Mm-hmm. People still love them and, and collect them and learn from them as history, social history, and uh, enjoy them. I mean, I, it, it, it's heartening to me that you enjoyed them. They didn't, mm-hmm. they didn't seem as if I were totally out of touch with human nature anyway. <laughs> but... No. So, I mean, that's one of the things that I noticed. I think it's not necessarily the plot that's that's like propelling me through these books and mm-hmm. which is not a, a ding on the plot at all but it's 100 percent the characters yeah and because they are so like they're so vibrant and passionate and very easy to empathize with even when i don't like things they're doing and saying mm-hmm. and i want to just say like no stop don't don't do that thing please <laughs> so where did Laura and Beth and Bebo and Jack all come from? Necessity. I don't know what else to say. Uh, it was all between my ears. It was all my imagination, my need. And the sparks that flew from the first few books I found, including uh, Spring Fire, that encouraged me to... It, 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 opened a door to understanding 
I didn't know how people found each other or <clears throat> how people were living their lives at the same time I was and finding them, finding that they, they could still laugh about things, they could still get together, that life wasn't totally drab or frightening and people were somehow doing that. And it made me desperate to get to a big city. Uh, we were in Philadelphia and I used to walk all over the neighborhoods looking for, uh, I knew there was a lesbian bar on a certain street. And I would walk around there during the day until the neighborhood got kind of scary and I would go home. And I would do this while my husband was at work. It was a quest. <laughs> to to find a, a community. And if you were lucky enough to be in, of course, Greenwich Village or Chicago or San Francisco's Castro or Los Angeles or New Orleans or not Miami, you were very lucky because there was a place there for you and you, you could find it if you had the courage to walk in there. It would change your life, but it would also, it would change it in good ways. Suddenly, you're a member of a group. And, and it was those groups getting together and supporting each other that formed the foundation of community. And I you know, I used to hear from young women saying, now I know what to wear. Or now I know where to go that's the closest to me. And I know what life can be like. And that's what I want. That's what I need. So I was writing about this on the basis of a lot of reading of my own. I learned a lot from Mary Jane Meeker. Ah, oh, you know, she introduced me to a lot of other people. And the book sold so well that I was hearing from just remarkable Audre Lorde. I heard from, um, oh gosh, Lana Turner's daughter. She said that was the first lesbian book I read was Odd Girl Out. And I literally found it at Schwab's drugstore, <laughs> where Lana was supposedly discovered, but actually that wasn't it. But I mean, this kind of thing stays with you. It, it, it's, it's amazing. I think you're quite right. I do think my books are character-driven rather than plot-driven. And um, I think maybe that that's what sustains them. You know, it's kind of remarkable for a paperback original to have a life, a real life, half a century, 60 years. Uh, it was the mid-50s when I, when Odd Girl Out came out. Another thing to keep in mind is that the pulp paperbacks did give a step into the publishing world to a lot of young writers. Gore Vidal wrote pulps, Patricia Highsmith, uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley, Ray Bradbury. I mean, a lot of them were out there in pulp paperback covers. So it wasn't shameful, but it wasn't taken very seriously. And the books were sort of treated like throwaway literature. They would be, you know, you read them on the train on your way to work or on the trolley or the bus. And um, many of them could be consumed in a few hours and you just throw them away. So the fact that some of them subsist to this day, that, because what would happen is the publishers would come through and pick up the unsold copies. They'd rip those, those scandalous covers off. They'd put a big black X across the title page. So they would trash them 
They'd repulp them. They'd reuse the paper or they'd just throw them out. So you, they're hard to find. If, if you've got one in good shape, they're worth a lot of money. You look on eBay <laughs> or a, a books is a wonderful place to look for them. And the price on um, the few that are still around in good condition is kind of astronomical. <laughs> so I never would have imagined that my books would have a life. It's it's sort of mm -hmm. like your children, you know, you you send them out in the world and you cross your fingers and maybe they're sort of embarrassing, but they're yours. <laughs> <laughs> it is like children. <laughs> And uh, mine, fortunately, are wonderful now, of course, long, mm -hmm. long since grown women. But um, so you don't know what you, you don't, in a way, know what you've done. It was that fan mail, as I mentioned, that, that gave me a sense that those books were out there making friends and, and, and developing their own lives. Mm -hmm. And it took a while. They all of a sudden there's. A whole reprint edition brought out by the New York Times in hard covers. The Times used to have a publishing arm for books. And then the Nyad Press edition came out in the 80s. And quality paperback books, which alas is no more, but they brought out the an omnibus edition, which left out one of the stories. I can't remember which one. And then in the early aughts, Cleus Press brought out the edition that's now available. And of course, now they've moved on to, to uh, eBooks. So you can mm -hmm. download them on your tablet or your iPad or whatever you've got. And uh, it, it's sort of, uh, I mean, the, the books are out there doing their thing, irrespective of how I feel about it. They've, <laughs> they've got their own uh, audience. They're making their own friends. It's kind of a wonderful thing. There's been a delightful play based on them called the Bebo Brinker Chronicles that was put on, on uh, off, off Broadway, the New York Theater Workshop. And then it was seen by a marvelous woman who's a Broadway producer. She took it up to an off-Broadway stage, the 37 Arts Theater. And uh, then it took off and it made the rounds across the country for six or seven years in colleges and community theaters and kind of all over the place. And I, I saw three or four of the productions and it was so, I don't, I don't even know how to describe the experience, <clears throat> excuse me, of seeing Bebo in the person of <clears throat> several different young women, uh, all with a different take but all doing a wonderful job. I mean, if we ever get those stories into television or, or film, it would be such a, a wonderful experience. Fun to imagine who they would cast. <laughs> As, yes. Uh, yeah, Bebo in particular, but all the characters. So, you know, miracles happen. <laughs> Maybe the uh, moment will come. <laughs> so I'm going to ask... A selfish question that I really want to know, and I'm sure other people probably want to know, and you can feel free to decline to answer, but what happened to the characters in the decades that followed? Well, I do have some ideas, and I did write a novel based on that thought, and I followed mainly 
Bebo because she became the iconic character, and also because she was so much fun to write about. And I didn't like the book. So I'm not, I don't know what to say about that. And it was never published. I really, I wish I had a good answer. I've given it serious thought. I think if I ever write anything again, you know, after many, many years of an academic career and doing totally different things, would I go back to them? I, I was so young and it was all so energizing and, and vibrant to me. And to go back to them now as women in my age category, I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, I might even have to go back to them as they were and pick up the threads from their, their young years. But I, I, I'm not sure. I said what I had to say about them then. People have written sequels and done some interesting creative work with them. I don't know. I think maybe, I, I just don't know where I would start. I did make an effort. I did write that book. But it was all, except for Bebo, it was different characters. So I'm not sure I would like what I did. I, I didn't like that mm -hmm. one. I, it wouldn't certainly be that book. <laughs> I guess I have to say, I, I thought about it, but when I felt energized to do it, I was working full time. Then I retired, and I, I've been traveling for about 15 years, lecturing around the country and, and uh, talking to people all over, which has been a great pleasure and a, a lot of fun. But I think maybe I said what I could about a kind of um, harsh and difficult time. And if I, you know, one of the things I hope I did was show how, that people could still have fun, that people could still connect, that people didn't lose in the midst of a, of a challenging life. They didn't lose their sense of humor or their ability to love open-heartedly. That those are the things that, that make life worthwhile. And if you don't feel you have that, what have you got? <laughs> I mean, I, can, I understand why people think there's nowhere to go except off the bridge. That, that's why I think our, our media are, are important. I mean, what you're doing, your podcasts, the books that are now being written that are so much freer and more expressive of, of real life. I, I really don't know, uh, you know what more to say uh, that, that I've been part of and, and felt so intensely about. Not to say that life has petered out <laughs> either. I mean, yeah. it's wonderful to still be here. It's a funny sort of feeling when the the world rediscovers you and it comes around to take another look. And that's kind of what happened to me. I'm grateful mm -hmm. for that and, and met some wonderful young people. So now you see, you see gay and lesbian lives and, you know, and all the colors in between. All the, all the new terms that the young generation has. Uh, you see them on the stage, you see them in films, you see them in TV, on TV, you, you read their words, and to know you were part of that and maybe part of the first wave that got it going, and to still be here in the new century, wow, that, that's a gift. <laughs> 
that really is a, a like turning a remarkable corner and seeing a beautiful vista and, mm -hmm. and knowing you're part of the panorama. <laughs> That's good. So where do you think we're headed as a reading and writing community? And is there anything that has you especially encouraged? I think the young writers are just magnificent. Uh, the ones I've been able to read have done such a head-on job of clarifying what it means to be different and yet to be so much part of the world and and the events that are uh, they're, that, that they're sharing with everyone now. It's it's extraordinary to imagine the kind of life that I would have lived if I had been born in this era. And I think the young people have, have imagined it and they have lived it and they're telling the story and they have done it so well with such energy and such conviction that people in mainstream society are saying, this is great, this is wonderful. Prince, uh, uh, oh gosh, crown, not crown Prince Charles. What's oh, William. Name? William, thank you. Gone totally blank. That's how, how much I'm following the royal family. Prince William, only a day or two ago, was quoted as saying, in response to the question, what will you do if one of your children is, uh, comes to you and says, as a young adult, I'm gay, he said, oh, I'd be fine with it. I'd be just fine with it. Well, that means that the young writers and the young performers and the young people in, in, in every conceivable job who are living an honest life, they're doing their job. They're doing what Harvey Milk said we should do. They, they're out and they're living well and they're good people. And uh, this is something that wasn't known in the 50s when it was still believed by most people, even a lot of members of the LGBT community to the degree they were even a community then, to the degree they heard it all the time, they absorbed this. I mean, it was a terrible self-prejudice in their case, but this sense that being um, a homosexual was someone was being a, a contaminated person. And if you went out and made friends, you would make them gay just by having contact with you. That this was a disease that could be spread. And it was very dangerous because mere contact would contaminate a friend. And you couldn't be known to have gay friends or you were part of it too. You were, the, you were a tar baby. Uh, no one could escape it. It was that awful feeling that your identity had to be crushed or no one could come near you. That's totally gone in almost every nook and cranny of certainly the developed world and, and beginning to be the case elsewhere in the world, which is a, a wonderful thing that young people there are going through what we went through decades ago and, and having to face it with no, no assurance that they'll come through it intact or that their lives will be spared or that they'll be able to make a positive contribution, but they will, I know they will. 
life can be lived like you know there's this wonderful new surge where, where everyone is making little film clips saying it gets better and that was a great uh, campaign I think and was very helpful so that those kinds of things I mean my gosh you you can't believe what has been accomplished in, in recent years. So that gives me hope and the literature is in this in particular because it's so well done and it's so forthcoming and it's so insightful. And I think that's what has been needed that maybe we couldn't do to the degree we thought we could or tried to. Mm -hmm. Some people, so I'm, I'm in Canada and I see a lot of people in the LGBT community have been increasingly discouraged by things that have been happening in the last mm -hmm. few years since your last federal election and with some of the things that are happening at the state level as well. But I've also seen, you know, some elders in the community who have said, we've done this before. We can do this again. Mm -hmm. um, do you have anything that you would say to you know, some of those people who are discouraged or, or depressed, who are finding like their mental health is being impacted by what's happening. Well, I, I would echo what you just said. We did it before. We can do it again if we must. But I don't think we'll be starting from ground zero. Not at all. Having seen these decades roll by and having seen how people have soldiered through some of the toughest challenges that could be thrown at them, going all the way from the the days of Frank Kameny and Barbara Giddings, where you had to wear a suit and tie and a skirt and, and uh, nylon stockings to be seen in public and to declare yourself, to the first pride parades after Stonewall, to the AIDS epidemic, to Will and Grace, comedies with, with wonderful, likable people on television, to where we are now with elected officials running cities, serving in state legislatures and in Congress, running for president. I can't be hopeless. I know if you've been there and you're tired and and you see some slippage, it's, it's difficult to think to yourself, oh no, here we go again, for God's sakes. You know, if you don't learn your history, you're condemned to repeat it. I get that. But boy, I know my history and I don't feel hopeless and I don't think we're condemned to repeat it. We have, you can't go back from this. We're climbing the mountain and we've got a whole new perspective and we're, what we should be doing, if we look back at all, should be to look back with pride at what's been achieved and not to despair when, you, when there's a step or two back. No great movement ever went straight forward in a smooth way. It's just seeing the large picture that makes you realize how much progress is being made even in those moments when you think you've lost it or you're tired out and you've been through a big campaign and you didn't win or it didn't go the way you thought it would or should. The next day you get up and you do it again and you do it better and you get a new idea. You just have to think that way. And it was that kind of forward, don't give it up thinking. I mean, if you wanted to 
step back and hand it to the to the young people coming along or take a break okay but come back to it you know it, it's a it's a, a a wonderful oh gosh i don't know what to call it it's a project it's a lifetime project and then you have something to be proud of that you hand off to the next generation because they're going to slip too you know and then they'll have to find their step again and Absolutely. I think that is all for this episode. Where can people find you online if they want to connect with you? I have a website, annbannon.com, and they can also use it to write to me. I have to admit, I haven't been updating it lately, but that's okay. What, what's there is fun, and they, you know, they can read about the books. And, and I think it comes up to about 2014 or 15, somewhere in there. But it's, I maintain it, and I love to hear from people. So if anyone would like to write to me, they can do it through the website. And I can attest that you do write back. <laughs> I do write back. <laughs> that's um, true. So yeah, that's all. Thank you so much for joining me. It was a great pleasure, Tara. I'm glad you got in touch. Of course, I must also thank Catherine Forrest for suggesting that. It was very kind of her. And Hi, Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I asked her after we recorded the podcast late last year, I said, is there anyone that anyone else that you think I should talk to? And you were the one name that she said, she said you must talk to Ann Bannon. So I also will be sending a note to thank her. <laughs> that is all for this episode. Wasn't Anne brilliant? In case you're wondering, she's still alive and even recently spoke at an event at the Sacramento Library about, you know, being a part of our literary scene for the last 60 years and what's been going on with censorship and the like. I have to admit, I would be very, very curious to know if she would still say the same thing now that she said four years ago at the end of our conversation. But I still think it's pretty timeless. I think she's right. We got to keep fighting. And doing it the way we can, whether it's, you know, writing to our local elected officials, definitely make sure you show up and vote wherever and however you can. And for now, let's just keep fighting for our visibility, keep engaging in our literature, keep supporting each other, um, donating to mutual aid funds, all those kinds of things. If you've enjoyed this show, please make sure that you subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You'll get notified whenever Chris and I release an episode. If you have a friend that you think would like Queerly Recommended and needs all the queer media recommendations they can handle in their life, please make sure you tell them about it. If you would like to support us, we have links in our show notes to our coffee and our newsletter sign up. Or if you want to connect with us on all your favorite social media sites, we have links in the show notes for that too. Or you can search for Queerly Recommended on Instagram, Facebook, Tumblr, TikTok, and Twitter. Or you can email us at podcast at queerlyrecommended.com. Goodbye, everybody. 